Colossians chapter 2, I want to remind you the whole emphasis of this letter. If you're unfamiliar to our sermon series, we've been taking this letter that the Apostle Paul has written to this young church in the city of Colossae. We're taking it just a few verses at a time to explain the whole message of the book of Colossians. And what that is is this. There is this raging issue going on in this church. And it was all around this question of what is the method, what is the path, what is the way toward genuine maturity? How can I be whole and complete? How can I be the person I was meant to be? How can I reach my full potential? And there are some people in that church that were saying that you need something else. Particularly, you need the stringent standard of discipline, a list of do's and don'ts that can help you to arrive and be the sort of person that God wants you to be that can help you achieve your full potential. And Paul heard about this problem in the church at Colossae. He got news of this. And that's what drove him to put pen to paper and write this letter and send it off to the church in Colossae because he was concerned that their loyalty would be shifted away from Jesus. People were saying, you need something other than Jesus Christ to be fully mature. And Paul was saying, no, no, no. It, it's still all about Jesus Christ. He is the source of, of your maturity. You see the word of maturity or related to maturity in chapter 1 and verse 28 when Paul says, if you can just look at that verse, and the reason why I'm showing this to you is because I want you to understand that maturity is indeed a theme and topic of this letter to the Colossians. So chapter 1 and verse 28, Paul is describing his ministry. He's saying, him, that is Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom to what end? And here it is, that we may present everyone what? mature in Christ. So that was Paul's aim. He's saying, I'm preaching Jesus to you, and the aim of preaching Jesus to you is so that you might become mature in Jesus. That was Paul's focus in preaching and teaching, and furthermore, that's what he was agonizing for in prayer for them. He said, I'm praying that you would become truly mature, that you would reach your full potential, not in anything else but in Christ alone. This was the same purpose of the prayers of the man who first shared the gospel with the Colossians. His name is Epaphras, and you find out what he's praying for in chapter 4 and verse 12. So flip over to chapter 4 if you can, because I actually want you to get your eyes on it to see that this really is the theme of the book of Colossians. I'm not just telling you this. This is actually what is going on here. Paul tells his readers that Epaphras, who was one of you, verse 12 of chapter 4, a servant of Christ Jesus greets you. What is Epaphras doing? He's always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. What is he praying for them about? Look at it. That you may stand, what? Mature and fully assured in all the will of God. So Paul's labors and his ministry agonizing is for the maturity of the people. And Epaphras, the man who first shared the gospel with them, He's laboring for them in prayer that they would be mature. And the whole emphasis of Paul's letter is this. Here's how you reach full maturity. Now, what I want to make sure that you understand is that this is not a dead issue. Like, yeah, it was written in the first century. But the question of how you could be truly mature, of how you can achieve your full potential, people are still writing books about this. I went into the self-help section of a bookstore recently and I see all kinds of books and authors are saying, do you want to live up to your full potential? Do you want to be the kind of person that you were meant to be? And here's a path to that. Here's the way to achieve that. It's a very contemporary, it's a very relevant issue, but it's also a very personal issue. Because you know that your life is going somewhere. You know that the decisions that you are going to make this afternoon and this coming week, Monday, and the rest of this week, you know that you're making those decisions along a particular path. It's taking you a particular direction. What direction is it taking you? It's like only you can choose that. 
Only you can make those choices. It is a very personal issue because it determines where you're going in life. For every teenager, for every young person, for every boy, girl, man, woman in this room, it's a personal issue. How are you going to reach maturity? What is the definition of the full potential of a human being? Of course, what Paul understands to be the full maturity or, or wholeness is directly related to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the only human being who walked the face of the earth who lived up to what a human being truly should be. And here's why. Because he is the only human being who ever perfectly glorified God. Which is the purpose of our existence. To love and glorify God. Jesus did that perfectly. He said, I always do the will of my Father. He obeyed God to an extent that you and I have never obeyed God. He obeyed God to the very point of death, death on a cross, for sins he never did. So Jesus is the perfect example of what it means to be fully human. The, 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 the divine, he's the God-man, 100% God, 100% man. And that's why maturity, wholeness, our, our true potential has to do with Jesus and who he is. So Paul is advancing a very specific view of what our aim in life is, and that is Christ-likeness. You want to know the purpose of your life as a believer in Jesus? It's that you be conformed to the image of God's Son, as Paul writes also in Romans chapter 8. But the issue that was going on in the church of Colossae was this debate, okay, how do we get there? Is it a matter of a list of do's and don'ts? Is it some program of asceticism and self-denial? Paul is saying, no, no. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. In other words, he's saying this. A successful Christian life, it continues the way it started. Your Christian life, if you are a follower of Jesus, it succeeds the same way it started. There is no other way. To be, to, in which we can find maturity other than Jesus Christ. And that's why this is the very heart of the letter. Verses 6 and 7 of Colossians 2 is, is the point at which Paul has been aiming this whole time. I like to think of it as Paul is, he has a, a bow and arrow and he's pulling back the bow all the way up to chapter 2 verse 5. It's been this tension, 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 tension. He's just getting ready to release it. And then with verses 6 and 7, he releases it and it goes flying. And the rest of the letter to Colossians is exhortation. Okay, here's who Jesus is. Here's who you are in Christ. Now, now, here's all this tension to be relieved. Now, go do it. As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, here's the, here's the impetus. Here's the motivation. Here's the action. Now go do it. Your Christian life, it succeeds just the way it started. And we're going to break this sentence down into three parts. I want you to see it this way. First of all, we see the action to which Paul is calling his readers, and that is so walk in him. And then we see the ability. Okay, so there's action and then ability in verse, verse 7. You see rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught. And then you see the overflow of the Christian walk. Okay, so these three parts is the way I'm going to explain this to you so you have a, a mental map of where we're going. We have the action of the successful Christian life, the ability of the successful Christian life, and then the overflow 
of a successful Christian life. So first of all, the action. This is what Paul is calling his readers to do. And as I pointed out in our scripture reading, he uses this word, therefore. It's the first time he uses therefore because he's calling you to remember everything he's written up to this point. And just remind ourselves what he's done from the beginning of the letter. He, he's telling the Colossians, I'm praying for you. And in my prayer, I'm thanking God that he has brought you to faith in Jesus Christ. And that that faith has been exploding into love for other people and into a hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm praying not only in gratitude, but I'm praying that you would abound more and more. That you'd walk worthy of the Lord and that the worthy walk would show itself in gratitude because of what God has done for you in Christ. And then he goes on to talk about who Jesus is. And he says that Jesus is the Lord of creation. There are a lot of rulers in this world today, but Jesus rules them all. And not only is he the Lord of creation, but he has the power to bring together what has been made enemies. Naturally, you and I are enemies with God. And Jesus has such power to bring God's enemies to peace with him because he loved them so much that he was willing to die for them. That's who Jesus is. So Paul is bringing all this to bear on this exhortation. So therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus as the Lord, so walk in him. He's bringing all this to bear on his exhortation that they would walk in Christ. So I want us to focus on these two phrases, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, and then second, so walk in him. Okay, so we're still looking at the action, the action of a successful Christian life, what we must do, and the way that we must do this action is just the way we started. So as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, what is he referring back to? He's asking them to think about the time when they first trusted in Jesus, Okay. For some, it might have been several years ago. For some, it might have been a few weeks prior. Whenever it was, think back to that time about how you received Christ Jesus as Lord. And, and to us, it, it seems so normal and natural. But in the first century in the Roman world, to receive Jesus, whom they would have known as a peasant from the backwaters of the Roman Empire, a place called Nazareth, in this rambunctious sector called Judea, that would be accepting Jesus, who never achieved any great political status. Christ is referring to the, the Jewish uh, anticipation of an anointed one to receive Jesus Christ as Lord. Now, they knew what lords were, masters, rulers, and Paul's calling them to remember that they received this man, Jesus, the Christ, to be their Lord. He's saying, as you received him to be your Lord, continue to walk in him as your Lord and Master. Now, this kind of strikes our modern ears as strange, possibly because of that word Lord. And when I say that means master, that might mean kind of stifling and oppressive. And I think it's because part of our American culture elevates liberty and personal freedom and we value that a lot. In fact, we value it so much that we think that personal liberty and authority are somehow mutually exclusive. As if, if you want to have personal liberty, you throw away authority. And if you embrace authority, you're throwing away personal liberty. But we easily forget this, that everybody serves something. You've got to serve somebody. 
Everybody serves something or someone. It's just part of human nature. In fact, if you think that you can throw off all the shackles of authority, you have simply swapped one master for another. You have simply swapped one master for maybe the master of chaos or the master of indiscipline. You're always going to serve somebody. See, true freedom does not come in casting off authority. It comes in finding the right authority. True, genuine freedom does not come in casting off authority because that's, a, that's impossible. Everybody serves something. You've got to serve somebody. You're going to serve your, 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 your lust or your craving for wealth or respect or your own personal pride. You're going you're to serve something. It is a matter not of whether or not you'll serve. It's who you're going to serve. But who will you choose as master? Will it be someone who will just crush the life out of you? Or will it be a master who proved his love for you so much that he was willing to die for you? You're going to serve somebody. And Paul is reminding the, the, the Colossians that they chose as their master the one who was master of the universe, but also, so he has infinite power, but also who's willing to die on their behalf, so he has infinite love. Now, that's the kind of master that you want. And he's telling them, don't forget, you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and that's how you should continue to live your life. Now, you may be here as a, maybe a skeptic or just an honest inquirer, and you're, you're thinking, I want, to, I want to understand and believe these things about Christianity. But I have a hard time believing that this Jesus is who he says he is. Or that Jesus is who people say they is, he is. I was... There's a historian, Will Durant. He wrote an 11-volume history of the story of civilization. I, I recently acquired this, and I noticed that Will Durant wrote the first few books, and then his wife's name started appearing on the last few books. I wonder, maybe his wife started saying, okay, Will, it's time to finish this. <laughs> and she started joining him and, and helping him finish this up. But, but nevertheless, it's a masterpiece of history. Now, Will Durant was no, he was no Christian, right? He was, a, he, was a, he was a skeptic. In fact, there's parts of this, this story in which he's, he's certainly not building up the tenets of the Christian faith. But I came across this remarkable comment about Jesus when he was writing about the first century Rome. He writes this, that a few simple men should, in one generation, have invented so powerful and appealing personality. He's referring to the gospel writers writing about Jesus. That a few simple men should have invented this personality, so lofty an ethic and so inspiring a vision of human brotherhood would be a miracle far more incredible than any recorded in the Gospels. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, how do you invent somebody like this? How do mere human beings possibly, out of their own imagination, invent a Jesus whose very nature humbles our pride yet allows us the delight of having a relationship with God, not upon our own merits, but upon his merits. Like even this skeptic Will Durant, who wrote this amazing history of the story of civilization, was willing to recognize the miraculous nature of who Jesus was. 
And I commend this to you, those of you who may be wondering about the validity of the Christian faith. How do you possibly invent someone like this? Or can you rather say that these people who wrote these documents knew what they were talking about? Because as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, there are people who had seen Jesus alive. But who Jesus is and the claims he makes about himself, they are real and they're validated by the fact that he defeated death. And Paul is telling the Colossians, this is the Lord that you received. This is the master that you own. So as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, continue walking in him. So I looked at the phrase, we examined together, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord. Now let's look at the second part of this. So walk in him. Now I love this metaphor of walking because it's so simple. We all know what it is. You put one foot in front of the other. Several years ago, I had the privilege of being at the finishing, uh, the finish line of the Richmond Marathon, in which there were two runners going neck and neck right toward the finish line, just about two hours and 20 minutes after the starting gun had fired. It's incredible speed. And I watched these guys, and they're, and they're going, and they're, they're right, right against each other. One pulled ahead of the other right at the last moment and, and broke that finish line. It was an awesome thing to see. If you think about all the training and all the skill that went into running a marathon at that speed, and yet, what that man did in winning that marathon was nothing fundamentally different than when he took his first steps as a little baby. He put one foot in front of the other. That's what it means to walk. And that's why walking is such a beautiful metaphor for the Christian life, or for any life, really, because it's a series of decisions, one decision after the other in a particular direction. That's why Paul is exhorting the Colossians to walk in this way, to walk in a manner that's worthy of the Lord. What it means to walk in Christ is to live your life in a way that is motivated by patterned after and empowered by Jesus. Motivated by Jesus because of the effect of his example on your life. Paul said in another letter, he said, the love of Christ controls us. It's, it's a life that's patterned after Jesus because Jesus sets the example for how we ought to live. And it's a way of life that's empowered by Jesus because we don't have the ability in ourselves to live like this. We need a power that is not our own. And that's exactly the way what Jesus provides. Paul said in Galatians chapter 2 verse 20, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I. But Christ lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the, by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I mean, this is the empowerment for the Christian life. It's, it's motivated by, it's patterned after and it's empowered by Jesus, who he is and what he's done for us. I think that brings us to the next part of the sentence. We looked at the action, which is to walk. Put one step in front of the other. As Jesus is Lord, demonstrate the lordship of Jesus Christ, one decision after another. But how is this even possible? How can you get better at this? And that's where we come to the ability for a successful Christian life. The action of a successful Christian life is walking in Christ the same way you received him. Turning from sin, putting faith in Christ. That's what you do over and over again. And here's the ability. We find it in these three verbs. Rooted, built up, and established. So first of all, rooted. See, rooted, the tense of the word rooted indicates that it's an action that's happened in the past that has ongoing, continuing results. 
So some a root that's, that's alive in the soil. It's, it's the seed has been put there and the, the roots push downward and the roots are still there and yet you, you continue above the surface of the soil to see the effects of that rootedness. It's in the passive voice which means this. It means that it's not something that we can accomplish on our own. It's something that has to be done for us. Which means this, that a successful Christian life ultimately finds its source not in ourselves but in Christ. We're going to be rooted in him. I don't root myself. I was rooted by Jesus Christ. The life-giving soil is Christ. This is something that has happened to me because of my crying out in faith to him. Not because of any credit of my own. Not because of any merit of our own. We're rooted but also built up. Paul says, built up in him. And it, it, it's interesting, if you look at the metaphors, okay, Paul is, he's using this verb rooted that has to do with a plant or, or a tree with roots into the ground, and then built up. He's changing metaphors to that of a building. And, and you see here the, the, the logic that roots go down, buildings go up. There, there is an area in which we can continue to grow and mature and develop because of the roots that we have in Christ. Built up. It's important to note that this building up is not something that happens just by yourself. Because this whole metaphor of a building has to do with parts interlocking with each other. Paul uses the same metaphor in Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 15 and 16. He says this, Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds up in love. This is what's going on to us as fellow believers in Jesus Christ. We're being knit together. We're growing together. We're being built up in love. And then, the third verb here under the ability for the successful Christian life is that of established. Established in the faith just as we have been taught. Now here Paul is referring to how well we understand the truth about Christ. The Christian faith that we've been taught. And this means that we need to not only know what we believe but also why we believe it. If you've ever helped a child with their homework you can kind of know when they're guessing at the right answers. Have you ever done that before? You're like, six times six. Thirty-six? Okay, do you know for sure though? Right? Are you sure about that? And, and what they're looking for is you to say, yes, that's it. But what you're looking for is that they know why that's the right answer. It's the same with the Christian faith. We, we want to know what to believe. But we also want to know why we believe it. We want to be established in the faith. Because our faith will get tested. You're aware that the child you're helping with your homework is going to face a test. And the test might bamboozle him if he doesn't know why he knows what he thinks he does. And so there are, going to th some, there are things that are going to come across your path that are going to make you wonder whether the Bible says it's true. Can God really be trusted with my finances? Can God be really trusted with the relational difficulty that I'm facing right now? Because when life gets hard and when 
your, your marriage and children and finances and, and home and career, they don't turn out like you wanted them to. There, there's pressure on what you believe. And you're always going to be faced with temptation to throw away what you believe to be true in favor of what seems to be true right now, today, in the difficulty, in the cloud, in the storm. And what Paul is saying here is that to be a successful Christian, to be growing and maturing, to be rooted and built up, means not only that you know what you believe, but in the face of a storm, in the face of a temptation, you know why you believe it. Yeah, I want to know what I believe. I want to know the Word of God. I want to know more deeply the Gospel. But I believe if there's something that is worth believing with all my heart, it's worth exploring with all my mind too. The Bible says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your mind. And Christianity, if it is true, is robust enough for us to ask it the hardest questions. And that's what we can do. We want to know not only what we believe, but why we believe it. The more you learn about the Christian faith, the more it makes sense the why the world is the way it is. See, the Christian faith is not the sort of faith that the more you learn about the world, the less plausible Christianity seems. That's not the way it is. Christianity is the sort of faith, the more you learn about it, the more the way the world is, makes sense. Oh, that's the way things are. It's kind of like C.S. Lewis made this helpful observation. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. In other words, not only can we see the truth of the Christian faith, but in light of those truths, in light of the truth that there is a God who created human beings for his glory, in light of the truth that human beings have fallen into sin and rebelled against him, thus shattering their wholeness and wellness and splintering relationships, the fact that God has sent Jesus Christ as a Savior to heal our brokenness and that one day he will return and restore all things right, all those things are the light in which this world suddenly begins to make sense and without it there is darkness and obscurity. I believe in Christianity not only because I understand its truth and believe its truth, but because by its truth, everything else is light, makes sense, it's understandable. And that is why it's so important for us to be established in the faith, to know not only what we believe, but why we believe it. There's the action to walk, just as we received Christ Jesus as our Lord. Ability, being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught. And then finally, the overflow of this. Okay, remember I said the successful Christian life, it succeeds the way it starts. The action is one of walking, just like you receive Christ Jesus of the Lord. The ability is being rooted and grounded and established, rooted and built up and established in the faith. And now, how does it show? How, how does this evidence itself? How do we know it's real in our lives? There's an overflow. This word abounding, it's the same way that you want the ice cream server to pack your cone. You don't want them to just level it off. You want it to be clustered all above the cone. Why? Because you know it's full and it's overflowing. That's the way that we should be with gratitude. It's the evidence, it's the overflow of a successful Christian life. Why? Because a believer in Jesus Christ has been given something he didn't deserve and could never earn, and that is his salvation. 
And the only appropriate response to that is not one of guilt or resentment or pride because we couldn't earn it. It's one of gratitude. It's, it's having accepted this thing and realized, I, I don't deserve it, but thank you. I'm not trying to earn it back because I could never just thank you. That's what overflows from the person who has been transformed by the gospel. Not someone who's saying, I'll make it up to you someday. We can't. Not someone saying, no, that's too good to believe. You're trying to control me. There's an attitude of resentment. No, no, no. God loves us. This is what he's given to us. And gratitude flows over from a life like that. And the gratitude has been a theme throughout Colossians. Paul modeled gratitude here in the first part of this book by saying that he's thanking God for the Colossians. He said it's a mark of Christian growth in verse 12 of chapter 1 when he says we always are giving thanks to the Father. And then later on in this book, he simply commands the people to be thankful. He tells them to teach and sing with thankfulness in their hearts. He said in verse 17, if you can see it on your, in your Bibles there, in verse 17 of chapter 3, he said, Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Why is gratitude such a hallmark of the Christian life? Because it's the only appropriate response to receiving a gift that we didn't deserve and could never earn. That's why gratitude is such an important hallmark characteristic. And that is what will overflow from the life of someone who was walking in Jesus Christ, empowered by being rooted in him and being built up in him and established in the faith, overflowing with thanksgiving. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that's exactly what you felt when you first received him as Lord. And if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you can receive Jesus as your Lord. What other master could you desire? What other master has such power? What other master has such love? And for all of us, as we've received him as Lord, walk in him as Lord.